We're going to think about that together and more in these six verses of God's word. But before we begin, let's pray and ask God to help us. God, we remember and acknowledge together before you that we are utterly and completely dependent on your spirit in order to be able to understand and rightly respond to these words of truth that are before us in these six verses. So Holy Spirit, please come and help us. Give us understanding. Empower us to respond to these truths with faith and humility and with a deep sense of gratitude for the grace you have so richly poured out on us through Jesus Christ. We trust your providence together that these are the verses we're looking at this morning and we pray that you would apply them directly and personally and powerfully to our hearts. Each and every one of us, young and old together, And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 11, reading verses 1 through 6. This is the living and active word of God. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We're going to look first at the question Paul asked at the beginning of verse 1. You can see in your sermon notes there. Has God rejected his people? The answer, of course, is no. And we'll look at the two examples he gives of the fact that God has not rejected his people. First, Paul, example of Paul himself, and then Elijah and the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So first, let's look more closely at the question Paul asks there at the beginning of verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Why does Paul ask this particular question? Well, it's because of what he's just been saying about the unbelief of God's people. In light of the fact that Israel has not believed the gospel, in light of the fact that Israel has been disobedient and contrary to God, Paul says, I ask then, I ask therefore, has God rejected Israel? Has God cast off his people? Has he cast them away? Has he abandoned them and forsaken them? And of course the answer is, in classic Pauline form, by no means. In other words, no way. Absolutely not. Never. God forbid that God should reject his people by no means. 
But that answer begs another question, doesn't it? If it's true that his people have failed to believe in him, and yet it's also true that he hasn't rejected his people, then how can that be? Or more specifically, who then are his people? And Paul's answer, as we'll see together, is that his people are the remnant that he has chosen by grace and kept for himself. He hasn't rejected his people because he has preserved a remnant from among them. Kind of like he said back in chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel physically belong to Israel spiritually. Those who truly belong to Israel, those who are chosen by God's grace and kept by God's power, God has not rejected them. God cannot reject them. God never will reject them. He has not rejected his people because he has kept for himself a remnant. And Paul gives two examples of that remnant, himself and Elijah and the 7,000. And we'll look at those in just a minute. But first, let me say one thing just by way of application here at the beginning. And that is that we should remember that all of us deserve to be rejected by God. That's one of the basic teachings of the Christian faith. That's one of the core doctrines of the Bible. All of us deserve to be rejected by God because of our sins against God, our sinful actions and our sinful thoughts, our sinful words and even our sinful desires. We are sinners in the sight of God, as we say in our first membership vow, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. He is holy. We are unholy. He is pure. We are impure. And because he is just, he must reject us. Like a scanner at a factory rejects products that are defective as they come down the production line because they are impure or don't meet the required standard So our just God must reject us because of our impurities and because we fall short of the standard of his perfect law. We deserve to be rejected by God, every single one of us here in this room without exception. And it would be right and just and even praiseworthy for him to do so. And so let us be freshly humbled and brought low under the weight of that truth and also freshly amazed and filled with wonder that we who deserve to be rejected through Christ are accepted by God. Through faith in God's Son, we are accepted and adopted as sons and daughters and our Heavenly Father will never reject us, His people. He will never abandon his children. What security that gives us. What certainty and confidence we can have in our Father's love for us who rejected his own Son so that sinners like us could be accepted. What humility and charity that should grow 
in our hearts. What joy and peace and contentment. Well, like I said, Paul gives two examples of this remnant God has not rejected. And the first example is Paul. It's himself. Main point number two in your notes. Look again with me at verse one. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people because I am one of his people and he hasn't rejected me, Paul's saying. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. That is, I myself am officially and verifiably an ethnic Israelite, one of God's old covenant people. And he hasn't rejected me, even though that's what I deserve, Paul certainly would have said. By the mercy of God, I'm part of the remnant that was chosen by grace. And then he reiterates in the first part of verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And let's remember what it means that God foreknew his people. The fact that God foreknew us means that he knew us before, before creation, before there was time, from all eternity past. He foreknew us. He foreloved us. He loved us before creation. He set his saving affection on us before there was time. So the fact that he foreknew us doesn't mean that he knew certain facts about us beforehand, like that we would believe, for example. Of course he knew that we would believe. He knows all things, past, present, and future, but that's not what this is about. It doesn't say that he foreknew certain facts about us, It says that he foreknew us. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God foreknew us. God foreloved us. God set his saving love on us before there was time. And because he foreknew us, he has not rejected us. And he never will. You see what Paul's doing? He's... He's drawing a line from God's foreknowledge in eternity past to God's faithfulness in the present, which, of course, also extends forever into the future. God foreknew us before there was time. God is faithful to us in time, and God will remain faithful to us into eternity. There's no cut in the wire along the way. There's no break in the circuit. God hasn't rejected his people because they're the people he foreknew. And he won't ever reject his people because they're the people he foreknew. For those of you who are married, it's like saying to your spouse, I'm never going to leave you or be unfaithful to you because you're my wife or because you're my husband. I set my love on you in the past. I committed myself to you in the past. And therefore, I'm going to be faithful to you in the present and by God's grace all the way into the future. God foreknew us before there was time. And therefore, he has not, he cannot, he will not ever reject us. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be with us and will be faithful to us forever. The second example Paul gives of this remnant God has not rejected has to do with Elijah. So this is our third main point now. If you look at the second half of verse 2, Paul asks, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Quote, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul's referring to the episode in 1 Kings chapter 19. Pastor Deckard has mentioned recently at Men's Breakfast, where the evil queen Jezebel is trying to kill the prophet Elijah after he defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Elijah escapes to a cave on Mount Horeb, and as Paul says, appeals to God against Israel in this way. Lord, they have killed your prophets. It means Israel has killed God's prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I have kept for myself a remnant among the Israelites. I have kept for myself 7,000 true Israelites who have not bowed the knee to the false god, Baal. And notice the language here. I have kept for myself. So God did it. And he did it for God. He did it for his own reasons, and he did it for his own glory. So the reason there's a remnant is because of God. It's not because of the remnant and their superior intelligence or character or willpower. It's because of God and his power and mercy and grace. Similarly, the only reason we as Christians today no longer bow the knee to the false gods of this world as we once did, though we are tempted still to do, is because of God and his powerful grace. It's because God has chosen us and kept us. If it weren't for God, we'd still be worshiping idols. If it weren't for God, Elijah and the 7,000 would have continued worshiping Baal along with the rest of apostate Israel. If it weren't for God, Paul himself would have continued trusting in his own righteousness, persecuting the church, and opposing the gospel of God. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God did it for God for his own reasons, for his own glory. Salvation belongs to God. Elijah thought he was alone, but God told him, you're not alone. Perhaps you've felt alone like that before. 
because as far as you knew, you were the only believer in your class or in your workplace or in your unit or even in your family. And there are times when that's the case, but sometimes God kindly shows you that you're actually not alone. Maybe there's another believer in your class you didn't know about. Maybe they speak up for Christ one day in class, or you do, and they come and talk to you afterwards and thank you for saying something. And God kindly shows you that you're not alone. There's someone else who's on the same team as you are, who's wearing the same jersey you are wearing, and you can encourage each other and pray for each other and seek to bear witness together. But regardless of whether or not we're alone when it comes to man in a given situation or in a certain context, We are never alone when it comes to God. God is with us wherever we go, in whatever situation we're facing. So we don't have to be afraid or dismayed or stressed or overwhelmed or despairing. Isaiah 41.10, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is with us. He will never leave us, so we are never alone. So God has not rejected his people, as evidenced by Paul himself and as evidenced by Elijah and the 7,000. And now Paul draws a conclusion from that there in verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Just like there was a remnant then, So there is a remnant now, Paul says. Just like in the past there was a remnant, so too at the present time there is a remnant. A remnant is something that remains, something that is left, kind of like a remnant of yarn or cloth after a sewing project, or perhaps the last slice or two of pizza or the last piece of apple pie. It's what remains, it's what is left. Paul said back in chapter 9, verse 27, very soberly, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And Paul's saying here that at the present time, at his present time, the time he wrote this letter, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And this is the case at our present time as well. As the study note in the ESV study Bible puts it concisely, in Paul's day, as in Elijah's day, and today, a remnant of Jews believe in Christ because of God's electing grace. Now, I recognize that there are different views on this subject, but it seems to me that Paul's saying here and in the rest of chapter 11 that there's a remnant of ethnic Jews who are still being saved today. 
along with all the Gentiles, all the non-ethnic Jews who are being saved. And all of us, the remnant of ethnic Jews and all the Gentile believers, have been chosen by grace. We've been chosen by God. We've been elected by God. We've been predestined by God for salvation. And we've been chosen by grace, on the basis of grace, because of God's grace. And this is not unjust or unfair of God to choose us and not others because no one deserves to be chosen. And any who are chosen are chosen by grace, like it says. Not because of anything in them, but because of the grace and mercy of God. One commentator put it this way, many worry that the choosing of some and not all would be unjust, but this idea overlooks the fact that election is gracious. No one deserves to be elected, and thus the election of any is a merciful gift of God that cannot be claimed as a democratic right. No one has the right to be chosen. No one deserves to be chosen. God's election is by grace, based on grace. That's what Paul gets at in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What a great verse. Grace is unmerited favor. So there's no merit involved. Before creation, God did not look ahead in time and see who would do enough good works and then choose them, elect them, because that would be them earning their election. That would be them meriting their election. But election is not by merit, it's by grace. It's not based on a merit system, it's based on a grace system. It's not on the basis of works. It's on the basis of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've been chosen by God by grace. And it's by grace alone. That's one of the key biblical truths recovered during the time of the Protestant Reformation over against the teaching of Roman Catholicism, that salvation is not just by grace, but it's by grace alone, meaning with no works mixed in. If you try to mix works together with grace, what you have is no longer grace. If you squeeze Hershey's chocolate syrup into a glass of milk, what you have is no longer a glass of milk. What you have is chocolate milk. If you squeeze works into grace, what you have is no longer grace. Grace is pure. Grace is undefiled, unalloyed, unmixed. And we are chosen by grace, by pure grace. 
by grace alone. Chosen not for good in me is what we sang together earlier. Chosen not for good in me. We were chosen not for good in us, but for grace in God. Despite the bad in us. We were chosen not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace. On the basis of the pure grace of God alone. Let me mention two things by way of application in the time we have left this morning. Two things. First, the fact that we've been chosen by grace should produce in us humility and happiness. Humility and happiness. Humility because of why he chose us. Happiness because of what he chose us for. Why did he choose us? Well, like we've been talking about, it wasn't because of anything in us. It was because of everything in him. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us and predestined us according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he chose us. Not because we're better than others, but because it was according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. If he chose us because we're better than others, that would be to the praise of our glorious goodness. But he chose us despite our sinfulness, and that is to the praise of his glorious grace. And that should produce humility in our hearts and in our character. It should make us say, like we do when we sing together the the wonderful hymn, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. We are guests at the great feast because the host sweetly drew us in. That's the only reason we're at the table, and that should make us humble. So humility, because of why he chose us. And then happiness, because of what he chose us for. He chose us for the feast. He chose us for salvation and eternal life. Ephesians 1, again, says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That should make us happy. That we have all those things in him. There's a lot to make us sad in this fallen world that we live in, to be sure. But there's always more in Christ to make us happy. 
We've been chosen because of God's grace. We've been chosen for eternal life. We should be the humblest and happiest people on the face of the earth. Secondly, and finally, we should take to heart the truth that God has not, cannot, and will not reject his people. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus, God has not rejected you. God cannot reject you. God will not reject you. And you should take that to heart this morning. You should soak that in like a sponge. Soak in like a sponge the truth of 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Or 1 Samuel 12.22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Or Psalm 94, 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Sometimes it feels like God has forsaken us or abandoned us. Especially in times of suffering. We might feel that way. But if you're a believer and you're suffering, that doesn't mean God has rejected you. It doesn't mean he doesn't care for you anymore. It doesn't mean he's far from you and unconcerned about your situation. God has not rejected you. He foreknew you before there was time. He chose you by his grace. He predestined you in love for adoption to himself as a son or daughter. And he will never, ever disown or abandon one of his children. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Well, Jehovah loves the righteous. We sang earlier. Even in our suffering, he is loving us well. In our suffering, he is working all things for our good. In our suffering, he is burning away our dross and refining our gold. In our suffering, right in the midst of our suffering, he is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. In our suffering, he is near, not far. And he cares for us perfectly and provides for us according to his infinite wisdom and kindness. He has not rejected us. He cannot reject us. He will not reject us. Take that to heart this morning. He foreknew you. He will never forsake you. 
he will be faithful to you forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these great truths. Help us to take them to heart. And by your enabling grace, to walk in the light of them in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.